This is Car Expert. I was speaking to the CEO of Nissan this week and he was saying initially we thought that this year supply would start to free up, but now maybe not even next year. It's just chaos. That new Range Rover completely, in my opinion anyway, resets the benchmark for luxury SUVs. This is a a little bit of a more sedate electric vehicle strategy, but still with the same goal of getting more electric vehicles on the road. Tony Crawford. Hello. Maddie, how are you? Better talking to you now. Hello, yeah, Williams well, Crawford. Cars. We love cars and we love talking about anything to do with cars. We do. That's what the podcast is all about. Mm. Hello, Will. <laughs> so, Croft, some pretty big news broke this week. The CEO of Aston Martin's gone. Gone after two years, Mandy, and um, I'm not sure what to make of this thing. I've got some really close friends in the HQ in uh, England, in Gaydon, at Aston Martin. I've been there uh, when Dr. Betts ran the company very successfully for about seven or eight years, maybe more than that. Uh, then Palmer, uh, English guy came in, Palmer, uh, ran it for about five years. They got rid of him, um, and uh, they brought in um, – uh, Palmer, yes, Palmer's gone, sorry. And they brought in Tobias Moores from AMG, where he was, where he'd run a very successful company in building up. Uh, and we know, we all know how many AMG models there are in at Mercedes Benz, or they call it Mercedes AMG. And then they brought him across to bring in, I guess, processes and, and get this company into profitability because. You know, Aston Martin has had since 1913. It's had a litany of 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 owners and CEOs and profitability not. And um, you know, finally, it was starting to do well in you know, sort of 2008 on with uh, Dr. Betts, who was originally a Porsche guy, developing a 911 Turbo, I believe. And then and then you got Tobias Moore. Well, I. I I think a lot of people didn't like his German style and uh, he, had, he had exodus, a mass exodus of some key people in Aston Martin, including the engineering and dynamics guy, Matt Becker, originally from Lotus. And, uh, he departed. I think there was a whole bunch of other people. Um, and uh, he's only been there two years. And, uh, you know, I think um, having driven the DBX 707 recently and how great that car is, I, I was ready to, you know, give him my full support, uh, as important as that might be or not, um, because of the work he'd done on this vehicle and the fact that he was able to get the normal DBX, which I thought was a fairly average car, to be honest, uh, average SUV, uh, into this amazing vehicle in every way. And I thought, okay, well, he's, I think he's onto a good thing here. And they've got rid of him. And the reason why they've got rid of him, if you can believe the reports, is that the um, the main money guy and the principal owner of, uh, along with the, some uh, Saudi banks, Lawrence Stroll of um, uh, F1 fame and uh, the biggest shareholder of uh, Aston Martin currently, apparently they had some um, uh, disagreements about the direction. Um, the AMG uh, chap, um, Tobias Moores, wanted to develop a German base where he would engineer stuff and uh, Lawrence Stroll didn't want that. Uh, I think he wanted something in Canada or, or the UK. Um, I, think, I think it was Italy. Italy, you're right. It was Italy. And then, uh, yeah, and along the lines of Italy, he's brought in a Ferrari guy that apparently was team leader on La Ferrari, 
that type of car that came along a few years ago, and uh, which I, you know, I really think is a strange move. And the, the why Lawrence Stroll uh, was reportedly, you know, wanting this guy was to add flair to the brand. Well, I think the brand's already had a fair bit of flair with James <laughs> Bond, and um, I, I, I don't think it was any in need of any extra f- flair other than uh, you know the James Bond franchise. But apparently, uh, Lawrence Stroll believes that that was the correct direction to go, and. And poor old um, Tobias Moores, who I was starting to, you know, really like and, you know, I thought thought he was really changing the way that company would progress in the future and get it back into profitability. Um, back in Dr. Betts' days, they were selling up to 7,500 cars, which was pretty good. And, um, and then I, th- I think they went backwards ever since. There has to be more to this to this story than just that little disagreement. It sounds like this could be a case, and I, look, I, I, I don't know, but it could be a case of two very strong personalities that uh, perhaps couldn't work alongside uh, each other. I think you're right, Will, um, 100%. I mean, these, these are difficult positions to be in when you've got an, uh, you know, a guy as chairman that's put in you know, billions of dollars um, and these Saudi banks. I'm not, I'm not sure how much they own, but I think they own the bulk of it. And then Lawrence Stroll next. I I don't know. Um, you know, I don't know why you would. You know, he obviously hasn't been allowed to run the full course of what he wanted to do. Tobias Moore's and you know, with uh, AMG or Mercedes AMG, Mercedes Benz owning about. I, I think it's about seven, may even be a bit more than that percent. They originally had five percent, so they do have a stake in this company and. Uh, Tobias Moore's, the other thing that I really liked is when I was on this DBX launch, um, the uh, engine guy, uh, Drummond uh, Jacoby, I think his name was, um, I spoke to him at length and um, he really uh, impressed me as a genuinely nice guy but so um, so knowledgeable about what they are able to do with that engine, that f- uh, four-litre uh, twin turbo, I think, isn't it, Will? out of uh, the AMG engine, out of the AMG uh, farm, if you like, uh, into this car. And they were they managed to get it up from 375 uh, kilowatts to well over 400, 420, I think, or something like that. Um, and only because that he came from AMG and they knew the inner workings of this engine, were they able to unleash more power? And, I, I, you know, I think that was just one example of, you know, what could be achieved by bringing in some AMG people that obviously Tobias Moores had worked with previously at AMG. So, you know, a bit of a shame, I, I thought, but, you know, the guys with the money control everything these days, especially well, in the car game. I was actually going to ask you, if you had control over who you would appoint CEO of Aston, who would you pick, Croft? Well, I mean, I've always liked to think that, you know, Aston should be run by an Englishman. But I, I changed that when Dr. Betts, um, uh, who's German, of course, and a Porsche guy, BMW guy, developed the Z, Z1, I think, um, with the doors that go up and down. Um, he he did a, such a, an amazing job and he was such a passionate Aston Martin guy. And, uh, and I think Tobias Moores w- was well on his way to – to being that guy as well, but obviously with a very, as you said, Mandy, a very strong personality. And, you know, let's face it, Germans are pretty good at running car companies. They run 
you know, you got Winkle, Winkleman running, uh, sorry, Lamborghini, had run it for 11 years previously and went away for, to Bugatti for a while and Audi Sport now has come back. So, you know, they know what they're doing and I don't think they lose any flair. I think they have all the flair they want um, to muster like Dr. Betts with Aston Martin. So it doesn't matter where you come from, I don't think, if you love the brand and who wouldn't love Aston Martin and all the associations that it has globally and as a luxury sports car brand, it, you know, it would be thrilling yeah. Um, it, it's an interesting move. I'm, I'm not sure I agree with it. I think people should be allowed to, if they're doing some good stuff, they should be allowed to, you know, to run their course. But if you're losing some really good people and more than one, then I guess, I guess the boss has got to say, well, you know, where's, you know, how do we plug that? That that brain loss, um, mm. and I guess he's done that with. No, I I wonder where Tobias Mills will go back to. Back to AMG? I, I don't know. Interesting. Time. Maybe. We'll see. Mm. Podcast at carexpert.com today. You are always keen to hear your thoughts. It is news time and we go to you first, Will, with Labor opposition details for the EVs. Yeah, so I don't know if you noticed this, but there's an election this month. <laughs> no, really? How? <laughs> no, I, I haven't seen any ads or, or news headlines about that. So it wasn't too long ago that the federal government announced a $250 million future fuels and vehicles strategy. So that was last year. Now, federal uh, the Federal Labor Party, uh, so the opposition, um, has proposed its plan, should it uh, win government, um, in this upcoming election, which would be a $500 million pledge uh, called the Driving the Nation Fund. So original. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> um, but basically um, what what they want to do, what the, what the Labor Party wants to do if it, if it um, takes government, is to co-fund a network with charging stations at an average interval of 150 kilometres on major roads. So once this is finished, uh, the ALP says its promised charging network would, for example, allow you to go from Adelaide to Perth across the Nullarbor and be able to charge your car, from Darwin to Broome and on to Perth, uh, from Broken Hill to Adelaide. So, you know, all far-flung places because uh, I think that's one of the biggest concerns that we constantly hear about from people who don't want to buy an EV. It's the range anxiety. There's mm. always this um, notion that every Australian seems to have this idea in their head that they want to take a really long road trip one day. Whether they actually do is another yes. matter. Um, but uh, this plan would go towards um, obviously filling in some gaps in the kind of the public charging infrastructure for electric vehicles. Uh, if you recall last December, the Labor Party also pledged to exempt certain EVs from import tariffs and the fringe benefits tax uh, with the aim of basically boosting not only new electric vehicle sales, but further kind of fleshing out the, the used electric vehicle market um, as part of, you know, a, a broader goal to get more EVs on the road. Um, but as we've seen with this strategy, there haven't been sales targets set for electric vehicles. There certainly hasn't been any talk about phasing out um, uh, sales of new petrol or diesel vehicles, as some countries have been discussing and proposing. Um, there hasn't even been any talk of um, actually implementing a federal uh, emissions uh, standard uh, for petrol and diesel vehicles. So it's perhaps not the most ambitious plan, uh, but I think the Labor Party, without getting 
too political here, which is pretty hard not to do when uh, we are talking politics. Um, I think we saw with the last federal election, uh, the Liberal Party uh, really drummed in this this notion that the Labor Party was, you know, fighting a war against the weekend and, and trying to ban dual cab youths and, and, and whatnot. Um, so this is a, a little bit of a more sedate electric vehicle strategy, but still with the same goal of getting more electric vehicles on the road. I mean, two fifty million, five hundred million. It, it it just seems like a really, I don't know, like a small amount of money to get everyone into electric vehicles and to build this charging network. And let's face it, if you're going to build public charging networks, they've got to be ultra rapid or fast chargers, 50 kilowatt or up to 300 kilowatt. Otherwise, it's a waste of time. No one's going to sit there and park in a shopping center for two and a half hours to get their car charged. It's They want to do it in 30 minutes. We all want to do it in 30 minutes, particularly if you're on the run. Second point is, why would you include all these far-flung places? Why not just get get it right in the cap cities first? So that you can drive from Sydney, uh, sorry, from Brisbane to Melbourne via Sydney or you know, in any which way you want. Why wouldn't you get those right first and then Perth and Adelaide? Why would you start, you know, wanting to fund, you know, a drive across the Nullarbor, which, you know, a very small proportion of Australians will ever do? I think, I think it's just about filling in the gaps in, in public uh, EV infrastructure. Uh, but you're right, though. I mean, when you do look at our, at our urban areas, there are certainly gaps there as well. I think the difference is, uh, in, a, in a lot of cases, you might gripe, and I've, I've had this too, I don't have facilities where I live to charge in electric vehicles. Whenever I get a press car, I'm, I'm looking for the nearest charge fox. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's not really all that many around in my neck of the woods. Uh, but the difference is a lot of people that are buying EVs are people that have the infrastructure in their home to charge their vehicles overnight. So where they, where these EV owners really need the gaps to be filled is when they're actually doing these uh, hypothetical road trips to far-flung places. Uh, that's where they, um, where the, the infrastructure is lacking. Now this, so this aspect of Labor's wider plan uh, is said to involve $39.3 million in federal taxpayer money matched by the NRMA. Uh, and it will further involve, uh, furthermore involve partnerships with state, territory and local governments, communities, industry and other state motoring clubs. So I guess it's all about kind of bringing those, um, those entities together uh, to really help fill these gaps in, in charging infrastructure. So, it, it, look, it's really interesting. Um, but, yeah, as I said before, there's nothing about federal emission standards here. There's nothing about subsidies for EVs, which we're seeing on the state level. So whether there really needs to be any federal action there, but it is something you, you do commonly hear people talk about. Um, and there's nothing really terribly ambitious here. I will touch on something that I believe uh, the federal government has spoken quite a bit about as well, and federal labor uh, is is on board as well with the idea of hydrogen. So federal labor has said that it will work with the states and territories to create a national hydrogen highways refueling network. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it, there's not really that many Hyundai Nexus and Toyota Mirai's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, with an investment of up to $80 million to deliver up to 16 stations on, yep, you're right, Australia's busiest freight routes. So it's really interesting. We're, we know that there are uh, a few car companies, a handful of car companies that are investing in um, hydrogen-fueled 
you know, passenger cars and SUVs. But mm. that's whether that's a dead end or if that's actually going to go anywhere. We, we've got, you know, as I said, we've got the Nexo, we've got the Mariah, we've got a, a couple of other hydrogen fueled cars out there. But it's not doesn't really seem to be a, a market that's growing quickly, but where there seems to be a very strong future for hydrogen, if the mm. investment is there, mm. is for freight. And that's an application that makes a lot uh, of sense. Yeah, it's, well, essentially, I'll take it one step further. It's it's to do with basically any industry that runs diesel. You can get rid of diesel with hydrogen, uh, with big big machinery. I happen to know a guy, Brendan James, is building a $100 million plant, hydrogen plant in Tasmania, and then it's going to do the same in um, uh, Queensland. And uh, this guy is a former mining guy uh, in WA and, uh, and Queensland as well. And he's, uh, he wants to change the world uh, when, and, and get uh, rid of fossil fuels in industry, mining particularly, and, um, and refuel with hydrogen. So he's, you know, we have the capacity he believes to um, build a number of very large hydrogen plants to produce, you know, enough hydrogen to run our industry and then export it as well. So I, I just back to that, uh, back to the the Labor and Liberal um, promise spends. It it just seems like Australia is not doing enough to get people into EVs. They're leaving it up to individuals uh, completely, and um, of course, fuel prices that we have now. Um, you know, would be pushing a lot of people to look at their next vehicle purchase as being an EV. And well, you know what, I, Tony, I think the next thing that you'll need to do is cross the Nullarbor <laughs> in an <laughs> EV. And if you vote Labor, they'll make that. Happen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. All right, we'll head off right. to the next story now. Audi and Porsche are entering Formula One, Croft. Yeah, Mandy, this is really interesting. Well, we all know, uh, or for those of us uh, in this world and enthusiasts alike, uh, we all know that uh, Porsche has been developing uh, e-fuel um, because, you know, um, I don't think they want to go all the way to, uh, you know, a, a quiet racing car. So with e-fuel, you can still run um, combustion engine vehicles with this fuel that produces no emissions. It's synthetic fuel, effectively. Um, and, you know, Porsche believes, um, uh, if you read the report on carexpert.com.au um, today, um, they believe that you can really only change um, the world of motoring uh, if you're in Formula One. Um, because that's where the that's where the, the the most technology changes happen, and you know we all know the cost of Formula One. It's enormous, but you can make some big changes. And and um, Porsche want to you know they they don't want to see the combustion engine go from Formula One because I don't think Formula One would be Formula One without hearing some yeah. form of noise, right? I mean, well, that's what Formula E is for, right? Well, that's that's right, and, and and how many of those have you watched? None. None. <laughs> I mean, it, it's pretty bizarre. I haven't. I've watched five or six minutes of it, and then it's completely of no interest. Yeah. Um. But I, I think why they're doing it is develop, you know, electric vehicle technology. Well, mm-hmm. Porsche want to keep going, and and you know, don't forget they supplied tag branded engines to McLaren in the eighties and uh, Ayrton Senna. Uh, my favourite all-time, I think there's something at the back of my wall. 
um, <laughs> with Ayrton Senna, uh, uh, with uh, Mansell behind him. Very famous shot, actually. Um, racing those famous tag engine McLarens, um, red and white, of the day. And they want to get back into that. Um, and th- they've been um, hugely successful in endurance racing. Um, they've supplied engines to tag, but they've not been racing themselves So in Formula One. So I think um, they just want to get into it and develop this um, synthetic fuel even more, this e-fuel, which, you know, might, you know, this it's amazing, but it might render the whole EV thing uh superfluous who knows like where this can go i don't know where it can go but if you've got no emissions coming out of combustion engines can you imagine you know the reversal of we're heading we're all heading uh, fast towards an ev world um you've got most manufacturers wanting to have complete ev um uh stables by 2030 um imagine if this ev fuel takes off and they've got to reverse all this thought process i, I it's really bizarre but so good luck to uh, Porsche and Audi. It's all the same company, of course, and Lamborghini, every other brand that they've managed to acquire over the years. Um, let, let's hope they succeed. Yeah. Well, they've already succeeded in producing the stuff. It's just a, a question of producing it uh, to an affordable um, status so that we can all buy, um, fill up with e-fuel rather than having to go electric vehicles and all the problems that come with that battery, battery, um, you know, the battery renewal and where do you put the batteries and all that sort of stuff that mm. that we have heard about. Um, all very interesting, and I'd love. I think everyone would love to see Porsche on a Formula One car. Oh, me too. Uh, who wouldn't? <laughs> all right. Um, now our next story will Honda is confirming an SUV that's going to slot right in between the CRV and the HRV. Yes, this is really interesting. So they're planning on introducing a third SUV model line in the next 12 to 18 months to kind of fill that gap between the two. They haven't confirmed what it's going to be, what it's going to be called, um, but they've said it will offer five seats and more practicality than the redesigned HRV. Now, five seats is an interesting thing to note. Um, You'll recall uh, when Honda HRV pricing and specs was released not too long ago, we actually found it only seats four in the Australian market. Yes. So um, now how often people use that centre rear seat is one thing, but it's always nice to actually have the option. Um, Now I believe it was down to Australian design rules or something like that where they they couldn't put the seatbelt in the HRV. But there's there's clearly a gap between um, this HRV and the CRV and we expect the the next generation CRV to get a little bit bigger. So what this model could be potentially um, is it could be uh, the HRV. (laughs) That's going to be a little bit confusing. There are two HRVs. There's an HRV that we get here and in Europe, and there's a larger HRV um, that uh, has been developed with the North American market in mind. Um, They have said uh, that the new SUV, like all new Honda launches in Australia, will come with a hybrid option. Um, so, look, it will be really interesting to see how that, um, what fills that gap, but it seems like that Civic-based HRV for North America would make a lot of sense. Now, Honda Australia, you know, we'll, we'll speak about it later when we talk about VFAX, um, but it has been uh, experiencing a bit of a sales slide um, with uh, the switch to the agency sales model. But 
Where it's been hamstrung is in the product decisions by head office in Japan because Honda could potentially see higher sales volumes if they participated, if they had entrance in high volume segments. But unfortunately, the large pilot crossover for the North American market, the related Ridgeline, um, they've just been left off the table for the Australian market because there's no right-hand drive models available. Um, There's no right-hand drive export program from the US for those particular models. So, Honda uh, also was talking uh, about how they're actually a little bit bummed that the Odyssey is going because it's been a pretty steady seller for them, second best-selling vehicle in its segment, if I recall correctly. Uh, But with Japanese production of the Odyssey ending and no uh, right-hand drive version of the American Odyssey, uh, they basically can't get their hands on it. So we've seen Honda continue to pare down its lineup. Like we lost the Jazz. We don't get the, the redesigned model. Uh, the relatively slow selling city sedan was axed not too long ago. Uh, so it's a pretty small lineup, especially for a Japanese brand in Australia. So having another model and most importantly, having an SUV um, in, you know, whether it's technically a small or a medium SUV, either of those segments are, are the ticket at the moment. Um, and I think Honda will, will uh, be really happy to get their hands on that. The big question is how much it's going to cost because the HRV already starts at 36,700 drive away. So I wouldn't be expecting a vehicle larger and potentially more powerful than that to be any cheaper. Uh, so where that starts uh, is an- another question for when mm. that comes. I've got to say, Will, the, um, uh, that North American 2023 HRV looks pretty schmick. Um, it, it really looks stylish and you know, a very smooth design. I, I really like it. it. It does. When Whenever I look at photos of particularly the rear three-quarter, it really reminds me of the Acura RDX. Um, yeah. So, it looks like a more premium vehicle than it is. Um, so, even the side profile looks mm, pretty schmick um, in our story. I, yeah, I, it's hard to make... Uh, make out what Honda's sort of all about at the moment, isn't it? Like it's it's really quite uh, tough. You'd, you'd love to see them. Um, if anyone grew up in the 90s, we, we all knew how prestigious the Honda legend was. They were literally sought after by company execs and they had a two-door and a four-door. I remember them so well. They were what successful, you know, CEOs bought back in the day. Um, and it's to see them down to this sort of at the moment very limited lineup uh, and super expensive Civic. Um, I, I just hope they know what they're doing. Yeah, it's it's just been a, just a series of just peculiar decisions. Like the Civic, I guess, if you were to compare it to a similarly specified Golf, it's maybe not commanding that much of a premium, if any. But the fact of the matter is there's no longer any more affordable entry-level models and they're fully expecting it to be more of a niche player than ever before. Then you've got the Accord, which, yes, to be fair, the midsize sedan segment is, isn't really a big one, but it's just priced so much higher than a comparable Camry. And, you know, everything just it just feels a little bit off. But, yeah, I think it really comes down to 
what this model will be priced at. So we'll just have to wait and see. Absolutely. Speaking of prices too, Will, we have prices for the Ineos Grenadier finally. Yes, and look, I, I'm not going to read this this massive tome <laughs> word for word. Mike Costello has put together uh, a very detailed price and specs article on on a vehicle that I think a lot of people uh, are, have been eagerly anticipating, mm. uh, the Ineos Grenadier. So uh, f- as just a quick recap, uh, British billionaire unhappy that the Land Rover Defender is replaced with a, a more, uh, I guess, road-going model, decides to create an automotive company and start building a, a, a successor to the to the original Defender. Uh, it's coming here. Uh, it will be priced from $84,500 for the base petrol and diesel. So same price for either of the two BMW sourced inline six engines. And that's for the two seat utility wagon. Um, you've got base trail master and field master models um, and quite a long options list as well, including option packs called the rough and smooth pack and, um, you can get contrasting ladder frames, contrasting roof paints and wrapped noses and wrapped rear doors. It's a massive oh. list. Safari windows. Uh, if you want to lux it up a little bit, you can get leather seats. You can get carpeted floors. Um, and, of course, uh, there's some Im- important uh, performance uh options on there as well like front and rear diff locks uh and so on so look it is a very very detailed list and that's not even talking about the accessories list so if this is a a vehicle that you've been interested in i know it's it's piqued a lot of people's interest um definitely check out the 2023 ineos grenadier price and specs article what do you think of it mandy can i ask you what i love it i love it yeah and it's not really that expensive is it like i didn't think it was that expensive no how much is a how much is a Land Cruiser seventy series? Really? Well, yeah, yeah, or exactly. even even a two door um, Defender. Yeah, I mean, a Defender is not. I mean, I I wouldn't call the Defender a. You know, it's incredibly capable off road, as we all know, and we've all been and on road. It's, but it just doesn't look like a utilitarian type of vehicle that the. That the old defender was, I guess that's why he's that's his biggest issue, I think, because mm. uh, there's no way that this new defender wouldn't go anywhere where this old one would go. I, I guarantee it would in Look, twice the comfort. Land Rover went after buyers more with my taste um, with the, with the new Defender. And look, if I had that kind of money to splash on SUV, I'd seriously put the Defender on my list. But in doing so, which I'm not necessarily saying it was a bad decision because the Defender is selling very well. Mm. Uh, but in doing so, they've clearly lost some buyers that wanted something a little bit more rugged, a little bit more simple, yeah. and a little bit more square edge. So Ineos is just thinking it's going to fill the gap there. And they've got a very interesting um, sales and service model that they're introducing here in Australia as well. So they're not just catering to the well-heeled elites of the of uh, Australia's city centres. Uh, they're looking at rural buyers. So whether they can make some serious inroads in the off-roader market against mm. the likes of Land Cruiser 70 Series remains to be seen. But yeah. it's uh, very, very, very interesting. You can, uh, yeah, as Will said, read more about the Ineos Grenadier. There's so much there and all our other news stories at carexpert.com.au. To get the lowdown on last month's new car sales figures, Mr. VFAX himself joins us. Hello, Mike Costello. 
<laughs> Hello, Mandy. How are you? Very good, thank you. Now, uh, tell me, is it much the same as previous months considering more supply constraints? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I really could just write one paragraph, couldn't I, and say car sales lower than they should be because there's no stock. Um, so, yes, that is exactly what happened. They were down 12% in April over the same month in 2021, which means a tick over 81,000 cars were sold. Um, and that has been put down entirely to uh, the massive wait lists, the lack of deliveries, the semiconductor crunch, the Shanghai COVID shutdowns, the Ukraine wiring harnesses, shipping and freight issues, you name it, the headwinds are out there at the moment um, and they're causing problems. Although car sales transaction prices are actually at all-time highs, so the dealers are hanging in there financially. Um, Toyota led the market as always with just under 18,000 sales and 22% share, um, well ahead of Mazda in second on uh, 7,378, which was ahead of Mitsubishi, Kia and Hyundai. And interestingly, uh, Kia has actually overtaken Hyundai year to date as well, which um, hmm. is a pretty telling result. Hilux was number one model as per usual ahead of Ford Ranger, which is interesting because the Ranger's in run out now with the new one launching in June, July. So would have thought maybe they'd be running low on stock by now, but obviously not. Um, RAV4 third, CX5 fourth and DMAX fifth. So absolutely zero surprises on that front, though there's still plenty of fodder to talk about. So... Hit me up with questions. What you got? Moco, um, yes. that, that uh, lead, that margin by Toyota is just astonishing. 22,000? No, no, That's, 22% market sorry, share. 22% market share against seven? Or what, what seven, was? No, no, no. So Mazda has about 10% oh. share, so just over 7,000 sales. But Toyota typically has about a the, – the rule of thumb with Toyota is it has about a fifth of the market. Every month consistently. Right. So 20, 22% is not an outlier for Toyota at all. It's um, It just dominates. It's the only brand really that's got something in every single segment from the Yaris all the way through to the coaster bus, Land Cruiser, Hilux, you name it. You know, even sports cars now, they're, they're quite dominant in uh, as a brand. But are they just not suffering as much with all the crises that everyone else is suffering? No, hugely. So the wait list on RAV4s is out well past a year now. Land Cruiser wait list is out past a year. Toyota's getting hit harder than most. It's just that Toyota is so dominant that it's all proportionate, right? So mm. while it's struggling to deliver in a big way, um, those morsels that it still can deliver to its customers, uh, proportionately speaking, mean that it, it still continues to dominate like no other brand in the market. So, yeah, it's a pretty amazing story, Toyota, and it's been doing it for decades. Uh How's Honda going? <laughs> uh, Honda, the old story. Everybody wants to know about poor Honda ever since it switched <laughs> over to the agency model. Um, so Honda was down by 37.2% last month and it finished 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17th in market between LDV and Audi. So, you know, not, 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 not an utter disaster because it's sort of always around down near that 15 to 20 mark now, but it's certainly not showing the bounce that we would like. Although it was far from the only brand that really struggled last month. Subaru was down 52%, Volkswagen down 45%, Peugeot 44%, Jeep 42%, Nissan 41%, Lexus 39%. So Honda is not exactly an outlier in that regard. On the other side of the coin, uh, MG, it only sells three cars, and all three of them were in the top 20, and it was up by nearly 60%. So uh, that, that Chinese company is not struggling with supply like a lot of the others are. Kia bucked the trend and grew 8%. It was the only brand in the top six to do that. Uh, Isuzu Ute was up. 
Mercedes was up, but then the real growers were companies like Renault under its new Atico management. So a private distributor has taken over, up 103% for the month. Ram Trucks and Chevrolet, both converting big pickups from left-hand drive to right-hand drive, were both up by 86% and 62% respectively. So fuel prices certainly aren't stopping people from buying massive gas-guzzling American trucks. So there were some good news stories in there to be found, but uh, overwhelmingly most of the brands were down and every single state and territory was down too. So it's not as if it was one or two regions sort of doing the damage. Renault seems to be doing pretty decently under a Tico because we hear this often when when a, a brand is struggling, people go, oh, they should switch to a factory distributor. And if it's the other way around, oh, they should switch to a private importer. But Renault's switch actually seems to be working out quite well for them. It's interesting, isn't it? So it's funny. I um I actually this week sent out feelers to try and have a chat to um, Glenn Seely is his name. He's the um he is the head of Renault Australia um, who works for Atico Automotive. Really keen to have a conversation with him because I was thinking the same thing. Will I was looking through that and for a few months now Renault's been showing some really significant growth. I assume they're getting pretty good supply, um, but obviously that product lineup is starting to resonate too. So yeah, very interesting to see. Hopefully we've got some more stuff on car experts soon, kind of explaining why Renault's doing so well. I see your hand up there. Yeah, sorry. Look, I'm just um, interested, just uh, one, a two-part question. Renault, what is the car that's doing it for them? Um, so, it's, I mean, Renault is really strong traditionally in the van space, right? So it's always doing well with things like traffic and Kangoo. Not a huge sell of the Kangoo, but it does relatively well. Um, that new Arcana is ticking over quite well, the sort of swoopy coupe-shaped SUV. I know we had the Capture crossover SUV in our experience centre in Sydney last year, which people were quite wowed by. So they're ticking over well. But overwhelmingly, um, it is the Colios, the Nissan X-Trail-based medium SUV that's doing the heavy lifting. Uh, about a third of its sales are the Colios. So, and I, I actually had one of those recently. I think it's a bit of an underrated car. Look, it's nothing flash, but it's got a bit of badge cred. It's a bit different, but it's still an X-Trail underneath, so you know it's not going to be unreliable big and spacious and pretty cheap. So I can kind of see the appeal, but yeah, that's the car that definitely carries the can for Renault. Which is okay. a, a bit uh, a bit concerning because we still don't know exactly what's going to replace the Colios in the Australian market. So if Renault becomes too dependent on that model, and I can see why the Colios would have been picking up sales recently because you go into a Toyota dealership and order a RAV4 and you get told you're going to wait 12 months. You go to a few other dealerships looking for a midsize SUV um, and they're experiencing supply issues as well. So Colios seems to benefit from having perhaps better supply than most. But uh, if Renault gets too dependent on that model and there's not a successor lined up for Australia, that will be a bit of an interesting twist. The other prong to Renault is that I heard that they were looking to bring in Dacia or some version of Dacia. Yeah, they've been... never known how to pronounce that, Marco. You might correct me. Is it Dacia? Dacia? Dacia. So the the Romanian kind of sub-brand, it's like a cheap and cheerful brand for Europe. The problem with that is it is dominant in Europe now. So the Sandero is Europe's number two selling vehicle this year. And so Dacia is, is, is just selling every car that it can make in Europe as it is, which means Australia is a bit down the pecking order. Um, they make a little crossover funky SUV called the, uh, the Duster, which I think would do really well here. It Love wouldn't it. get a five-star crash rating, so there, there could be that to consider. Cheap as chips, isn't it? Yeah, although it has to come from Europe, remember, which adds cost. But um, look, I think at the end of the day, it's just going to, we're going to have to wait until supply normalizes. Um, I was speaking to the, the CEO of Nissan this week, and he was saying, you know, initially we thought that this year supply would start to free up, but now 
maybe not even next year. Like it's just chaos. All the car manufacturers are having to completely change their forward planning. Um, and I right. imagine Darcy is going to be a victim of that. There's just not going to be supply. Um, but you are right. They're definitely looking into it. That's my next. That was my next question. When do you actually think this is going to recover? But you're talking 23 all of 23 or? Possibly. So there's no hard and fast answer because every brand's different. So the problem is there's no one there's no one headwind to supply at the moment. So to make a new semiconductor factory takes years. So, so that's going to be a slow build up. But then, you know, you've got Shanghai, which supplies a lot of the parts that have then put into factories elsewhere is in shutdown. And then who knows what, how many more waves of COVID we're going to deal with. And then you've got employment issues in the shipping and logistics sectors. Um, you know, the, the number of headwinds, obviously, the war in Ukraine is a massive factor as well. So it's very hard to get a gauge. Even month to month, manufacturers are seeing ships arrive with fewer cars than they expected or more. So it's very hard to get a sort of clear view of exactly when this nightmare is going to end, but it's not going to be anytime soon. I can Let's go back to horse and cart, Marco, and get some, <laughs> coach, some proper coach building back in the game. <laughs> Will. There was one uh, result from uh, this past month that I found really interesting. I know James did as well because he put a put an article up on it. The Kia Stinger. Tell us about uh, its little month. Yeah, so um, Wongi actually wrote a nice little sort of um, supporting story just to go alongside because Kia Stinger-related content always does so well, right? And um, a lot of people said, you know, the Kia Stinger, it's the wrong car. At the, it's Sorry, it's the right car, but at the wrong time. It's a big rear-wheel drive, muscle, sedan-type thing. You know, that market's dead. Everybody wants an SUV now, yada, yada, yada. And yet um, sales are actually killing it this year, uh, up 202% or 203%, sorry, in April, up 53% this year. 80% of its segment is what it accounts for. Um, it's really second only to the Camry in that big sort of sedan market in general. And better for Kia, 90% of the Stingers that are sold are the GT, which is the twin turbo six performance one, not the comparatively cheap four-cylinder sort of daily one. So um, there's still a wait list on that car. There's still way more demand than supply. And I think a lot of people thought that car might fall off the perch. Often, you know, muscle mm. cars in the first six months of their life do well and then sort of sort of slide away. But Stinger is still killing it. Uh, not really in many other markets, but certainly in Australia. Not cheap either at 70 grand drive away. Yeah, but, yeah, but find again, something you, else at that price point with that level of performance and features. Yeah, show me a cheap car, mate. They don't exist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are a couple of other little things that I found interesting. So in terms of the category breakdown last month, category breakdown last month, um, SUVs were 52.3% of the market, uh, 42,370 sales. So by comparison, passenger cars, um, which VFAX, which is the industry database, is, you know, we're talking hatches, wagons, sedans, coupes, convertibles, people carriers, 19% um, of the market. Less than one-fifth of cars sold were a conventional passenger car. Like commercials, 24% of the market. So every single month, the dominance of SUVs just gets greater and greater and greater. It used to be a complete 180 of that. Um, and, and this month was an outlier even by those standards. The medium SUV segment, 20% of the overall market. So that's the RAV4 CX-5 segment. One-fifth of all cars sold belong to that segment, which might explain why our medium SUV off-road mega test is about to clock over 3 million views on YouTube because 
that's the kind of cars that people are buying. And 4x4 utes are almost 20% too. So two segments accounting for about 40% of the overall market. Will, I see your hand up uh, there. Look, every single month SUVs become more dominant, but every single year we see more SUVs that are really not SUVs. Um, (laughs) Something like a Hyundai Ioniq 5 is considered an SUV by VFAX. Mm -hmm. A Kia Stonic is marketed as an SUV when it's a, a Rio with some black plastic so uh, look at the end of the day it's it's kind of people think oh no cars are going away suvs taking over but really in a lot of cases cars and suvs are just almost almost merging that's a very fair point that is a very Mm. fair point um Refreshingly, private buyers drove the market down 9%, but uh, 43,000 were private buyers compared to 27,000 business fleet buyers. So the, the, the growth is still coming from, you know, mums and dads and, and average Australians as opposed to business fleets picking up the slack. If we look at the propulsional fuel type, petrol, 42,000, diesel, 28,000, hybrid, 6,300. Electric, 866 EVs. Now, Tesla only sells cars in big numbers every third month because it imports in batches quarterly. So you can kind of ignore Tesla's April result because it doesn't really matter. Plug-in hybrids, though, up 150% off a low base, but we are starting to finally see plug-in hybrids get a bit of traction. Uh, and then finally, the main um, sources of our vehicles, Japan, far and away the, the top, as always, Thailand second, Korea third, and China which is now relatively ensconced as our fourth main source of imports ahead of the US and the UK. Not a lot of change on that front. So like I said before, kind of not a huge amount of surprises last month, the typical things that we've seen, but still plenty of fodder. And we're up to close to 200 comments in the sort of ask me anything forum that goes underneath it. So if you're listening to this, it's not too late to chip in, go and ask some questions and one of us will get back to you. Here, here. Well, while we've uh, got you, Moko, uh, Japan's answer to Range Rover uh, is here, the 2022 Lexus LX. You've driven it, uh, but also did you get chauffeur-driven? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I only had the um, – I'll say this in like apostrophes, but the base model. Um, oh. Actually, just before I get to, to doing this, I was actually on uh, the way to the airport a couple of weeks ago to go to the national launch in Tasmania for this car. As I was about to board the plane, I learned that my partner was uh, COVID positive, which made me a household contact, which meant I had to turn around and go home. So I got within a hair's breadth of going to the launch event for this, but because I had to miss it, we said, hey, please get us a car as soon as you can, um, which Lexus kindly arranged. Um, and look, this really is Japan's Range Rover, right? It's a Toyota Land Cruiser, but the interesting thing is this is the base LX500D, which is the diesel with the twin-turbo V6 diesel. It's 148800 before on roads, so, you know, about 160 on the road, which isn't cheap by anyone's measure, but it's only $10,000 more than a Land Cruiser Sahara ZX. And, you know, when you're talking at that level of price, ten grand is essentially nothing to that sort mm. of person. So I think there's a really strong argument that the Lexus LX is actually a more sensible purchase than a top-of-the-range Toyota Land Cruiser now. And, um, man, in khaki green with the optional 22-inch wheels, this thing looks amazing. It turns so many heads. Um, it's got a grill that is, you know, more diesel locomotive than it is car. It is the most... <laughs> intimidating looking vehicle um but you know i've never been a huge fan of the lx model but this one kind of changed my thinking on it that's uh, uh, that's really interesting you just said that you've never been a huge fan good mate of mine um who used to own a surf shop chain drove a range rover for years uh full strength then one day he rolls up in a black lx and uh, i said what 
and he said, mate, it's just so much better value. You know, 140 yeah. grand at the time instead of no 250. Um, and I, he said, this is actually rides better than the Range Rover. So do you know what I mean? Like I, they've got something going with that. I think if you can live with a grill that's as high as El Capitan, um, you, you know, you you get over that and you've pretty much got the value for money king of luxury SUVs. And why wouldn't you go with that? Well, yeah. it's interesting. So this one really moves the game forward because one of the reasons why I wasn't a huge advocate of the old one is it really did just feel like a tarted up Land Cruiser. And this new one is also a tarted up Land Cruiser, but Lexus has gone to a lot more effort to differentiate it. So first of all, the interior is completely different. So it's got a different infotainment system and top screen, a smaller screen beneath it. Um, you know, obviously the typical Lexus touches like beautiful leather trims and interesting yeah, Japanese wood surfaces and things like that. But it feels very different to the Land Cruiser. It's also got a seven-seat option and base guys, which is which is really handy to have for prspective family buyers. It's got multi-level uh, air suspension, which the Land Cruiser doesn't have, um, and and cooler enough, you can actually have it in its highest setting and it doesn't automatically lower as you drive. So you can drive around in full-on monster truck mode, which <laughs> I thought was pretty cool. If, you know, some bloke in a Ram 1500 thinks he can sort of intimidate me, I can just teach him a lesson and jack it up to maximum height. Um, obviously, that we've, we've talked about that new V6 diesel in the Land Cruiser, but it, it really is an absolute weapon of a thing. Anyone who thinks that losing two cylinders is a problem needs to drive this 3.3-litre twin-turbo V6 diesel with 700 newton metres of torque, 3.5 tonne towing capacity. Unlike, you know, a lot of the more Germanic luxury SUVs in its class, it's got a transfer case, it's got proper low-range gearing, um, so it can go off-road, it can tow that massive speedboat or whatever it is you want to tow. Um, and, you know, more interestingly enough is the refinement. You know, on 22-inch wheels, you'd think it would be a bit uncomfortable, but it actually glides. It's If you've ever flown on, on an Airbus A380, and Crawford, I know you certainly have, you know that there's things happening around you on takeoff, but you don't really feel them. You feel isolated from what's going on around you in this peculiar way. And the Lexus LX reminded me of that. You're aware that you're going over bumpy roads and jagged surfaces, but you're so isolated from everything, it just feels almost serene and surreal. So I totally understand the appeal of this car. I always have, but now I think it actually delivers on the promise, which is it's got all the credit of a Land Cruiser, all the off-road you know, characteristics all the reliability, um, but now a lot more sheen and modernity to it as well. So suffice to say, I was very impressed. That doesn't mean it was without flaws, though, and I'll get to those flaws. But, Will, first, I'm going to let you say something, so I stop hogging the microphone. <laughs> Look, I'm really <laughs> curious about the interior of the LX because I've spent a little bit of time in the 300 Series Land Cruiser, and as you said, they're completely different interiors. But does the LX interior stack up against European and British rivals? In some ways, yes, and in other ways, no. So the infotainment system is a massive stride forward for Lexus in general. Lexus finally has embraced touchscreens um, because we're in the, you know, 2020s now. <laughs> um, now, that doesn't mean it's without its flaws. There are some strange submenus. It looks a little bit empty. The orientation and the user interface is a bit odd, but the, the speed, the fonts, the processing, all these things are actually really good. It's got another screen underneath, which is incredibly high resolution to control other vehicle settings. In terms of material quality and trims, it's typical Lexus. You know, it feels great. Deep pile carpets, beautiful tactile surfaces. Um, lots of space in the back. Tow room's a bit 
bit iffy, but everything else is huge. Um, obviously, the third row seats, that massive tall roof means you've got plenty of room. Um, I think in terms of, you know, there might be a little bit more sort of polish and tech and pizzazz about, say, a Mercedes GLS that will sort of blow you away. It's a bit more in your face and ostentatious. But I think this Lexus LX interior is certainly much closer to the German and, and generally European rivals than the old one was. The old LX's interior felt a bit tired. This one certainly doesn't. Croft? I think that's right, yeah. I, I was just going to raise the new screens in BMW. Don't know if you've seen the the screens they're running in the iX electric stuff. It's it's next level and it, it is smack bang right up against the Mercedes dual screen approach with that crystal clear, clear glass and all that. However, what I wanted to ask you was the big issue that uh, my friend, why he switched from European with service costs. Um, what are the service costs? So the service costs are reasonable considering the price of the vehicle. So $595 for each of the first six scheduled services. The problem is the service intervals are six months or 10,000 Ks, which is too short. I don't understand why. And I get it if you're constantly off-roading and you're doing hard, you work in a mine site or something, I understand six-month intervals. But I don't think it's really sustainable today to have a car with six-month, 10,000K service intervals, especially one like this that is going to be bought by maybe wealthy grey nomads or people that want to do some touring, tow things. So I think that might be a problem. Where Lexus really wins is its Encore Platinum Ownership Program. So that means that, you know, if you travel, you can arrange to have a Lexus waiting for you at an airport um, an airport valet site, you know, you can get access to, to free service vehicles that are dropped off at your house. You get invites and, and first dibs on swish events and things at brand ambassadors. So Lexus looks after its customers really, really well. I just think the one problem might be the service intervals. So it's a thousand bucks a year, basically. Yeah, pretty much, because you've got to go back twice a year. And even if the experience is great, and there's no doubt that Lexus's experience and the way it deals with its customers is phenomenally good, you still have to go through that two times a year, which, I don't know, it's a bit annoying, I would have thought. Um, mm. It's not the only negative about that vehicle. Negatives are few and far between. A strange one is ventilated seats only come on the higher grades. And the fact that you can get ventilated seats in a Kia Cerato, I thought it was a bit weird that you wouldn't have ventilated seats. And the other problem is every single LX derivative has uh, 110 litres of fuel storage, except for the base diesel, which has an 80 litre fuel tank. Now, I averaged about 10 litres every 100. If you're towing, that's going to skyrocket. The problem is, if you're somebody that's buying this as a Land Cruiser alternative that wants to tow a caravan around Australia or do massive road trips, there might be a concern that you don't have enough fuel storage. Again, that's not going to apply to somebody who has it in Vaucluse or Turak or somewhere like that, but there will be people that find that to be too small. But to be honest with you, I really was clutching at straws to find too many negatives about this vehicle. Um, for what it delivers for the price and for the capability that it brings to the table, it is a seriously impressive bit of kit. The, um, the, it's not surprising then to learn that uh, at launch, it already had a 12-month wait list. Um, production is limited to 50 a month for Australia. And uh, the early demand, it, there's already about 12, 13 months worth of stock sold already. So if you buy one today, you're going to have to wait well over a year to get delivery of your car. Wow. It's a victim of its own success like so many others. So <laughs> if your mate wants to uh, upgrade into the new one, Croft, tell him he's <laughs> going to have to wait just a little while. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can search Lexus Alex at carexpert.com.au. Thank you, Mike Costello. Thank you, guys. Always great to be on. Awesome. 
Albers Fellows, opening line of his 2022 Range Rover review was, the new Range Rover is the best luxury SUV you can buy right now. It's as simple as that. Hello, Albers. Hello, Mandy. How are you? Very good. Now, can I ask, why is this Rangey the best? Well, it's uh, Range Rovers have always been, I think, in my opinion, the epitome of luxury SUVs. Uh, in maybe the last decade or so, the previous generation, the fourth generation, um, was superseded at some point by a whole bunch of new cars that have come out, like the Bentayga and the Cullinan, et cetera, um, that are obviously a little bit more expensive, but still um, you know, in a similar price point. But that new Range Rover, uh, the fifth gen, um, completely in my opinion anyway, resets the benchmark for luxury SUVs. It's quite expensive, don't get me wrong. The one you want is about 400 and something thousand dollars. Uh, the SV with the four-seater configuration, um, but it is like it genuinely first-class travel. It's unbelievable. Yeah, but they start at 200, a bit over 200, right? Yeah, yeah. You might get a steering wheel with that one, but um, <laughs> you'll, uh, you'll, you'll need to offset it up a fair bit. <laughs> yeah, that that uh, rear seat, stuff i think from memory was about forty thousand dollars so there's a lot of options you got to tick um uh in order to bring it up to a bentega or a cullen and standard it's, it's about 450 grand yeah, Which yeah is but you know cool. but you know what it looks it, it it's always been the best looking suv mm, yeah it's um they uh you can easily tell immediately it's a range rover it's got the same sort of characteristics from a design perspective except for the rear the rear lights are really quite thin and when they're not on, you don't even know which parts of the lights, which parts of the boot. Um, so it's a kind of a cool uh, design package on the rear, and it's using the, according to Range Rover, the brightest LEDs ever used uh, in a in a car. So the the rear lights really shine up at night. It's a it's a very very attractive car, and it it's got all these like really fancy stabilization and and roll sensors and things like that. Where given the car weighs an, an enormous amount, um, you can push it into corners. And although it's not the sort of car that you would when you, we were waiting for the Ranger of Sport for that one, it's still very solid um, and it doesn't feel its weight as much as you would think. Okay. What's the performance like? Oh, well, there's a whole bunch you can get. There's petrols, there's diesels, there's a hybrid, and then there's an electric coming in a couple of years' time. Um, it's it's sufficient. The the twin turbo 4.4 liter V8 from BMW is, uh, is uh, you know, gets it under five seconds, which is not super fast, but you got to remember it's, a, it's an enormous car. So it's definitely fast enough, I reckon. I am missing that supercharged. V8 engine noise though the the old JLR Jaguar Land Rover uh, five liter supercharged V8 that's been around for about twenty years uh, it's a it's a big uh, it's a big miss that one but this one's a lot more efficient uh, being a turbo and not a not a supercharged car but it doesn't doesn't sound nearly as good if I, if I have to say that I, I thought they'd um, moved away from the BMW thing like they've come back to it the engine back I think up. this is the this is Range Rover's uh, first modern application of a BMW engine anyway. It's certainly that V8, it's the first time they've used it. So I think it's going to be uh, – I reckon they're going to put that in the sport, obviously, as well um, for the V8 version, um, which, will, will, which will kind of be like buying an X5M uh, powertrain, um, which I don't know. Like that old SVR Ranger of a sport with those crackles, uh, I still think is probably the best-sounding SUV ever made as well. Interesting. But um, Ferrari's making a V12 SUV, so uh, I guess that might change soon. <laughs> uh, what makes the interior luxurious? Oh, it's hard to explain, really. I did a walk-around video you can go and find in my review, um, and you can sort of see just how ridiculous the interior is. It's uh, In the four-seat configuration, you can basically lie flat 
um, in the rear seats. Wow. You've got a fridge. You've got this table that's 3D printed that you press a button that comes up and you can sort of point it at yourself and have a meal while you're driving. And the car doesn't bounce around at all. So you genuinely can eat while you're driving. You've got this cup holders that are cam belt driven that come up like an elevator. And, you know, it's just there's so much stuff in there, so many gadgets that will go wrong at some point. But still, um, we love it for what it is. Uh, it, it's actually on, on, on the launch we had prototype cars and um, uh, there was a couple of things that, you know, creaked and stuff like that. But hopefully um, by the time it goes into production, um, all those sort of features will just work fine. But, yeah, the interior itself is just – there isn't a surface you can touch that doesn't feel fantastic. Everything, um, all the touch points, even the roof, every every bit of the car um, is covered in something really, really nice. And and you've been in Range Rovers before, Mandy. I think the, the thing that makes it really luxurious for me is the amount of space and the open airness that you get from sitting there. Like you got this enormous amount of room because it's such a boxy shape that you always feel like, you know, you never feel cramped. And um, I think the only other car that kind of matches it in that regard is probably the Cullinan. Um, and that's, you know, quite an, I think it's get one for about 750 800 so it's kind of double the price on. the generation that ran from 2000 to 2008 or sorry six ran a bmw engine yeah that was because land rover was briefly part of the bmw group but yeah but that was a whole generation that used a, a v8 bmw engine that was only replaced in six by a jaguar v8 they don't have any money let's be frank to make a new v8 engine themselves right it doesn't make sense at a time where EVs are all the rage to invest hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to create a brand new V8 engine. So they figured, let's just get one from BMW and see this generation through because sure as hell not going to have a V8 engine in the next one, right? So- no, I, I, it's 100% agree. I mean, they're all, everyone's doing it. Um, yeah, I mean, even the Grenadier has got a BMW engine in it, so... Yeah, they seem I'm, to be in I'm the engine. On order, I only realized the other day, so I've got to work out what I'm going to do with that. But um, you only yeah. realized. Yeah, I put a deposit on it months ago, and they sent me a thing saying, "Stop to configure your Grenadier." I was like, "Ah, oh, yes, that's right." Forgot about what that. are you going to do with all these SUVs with the G G wagon? Well, I, I, got, I got rid of the Jimny actually, so I was too I was too embarrassed to drive it. Uh, and um, <laughs> someone someone offered me uh, a reasonable amount of money for it, not as much as I spent on it, but enough to make the embarrassment go away. So were, I, you, um, were you too embarrassed to drive it because we were laughing at how you modified it? <laughs> no, it, it was so slow, it wouldn't get up the hill near my house unless I dropped it first because not only is the car slow as it is, but when you put like 22-inch tires on it, it just, it just doesn't have the torque to get up hills. And... At one point when I had to drop the first and the guy behind me beeped, I thought, okay, this car's got to go. Uh, <laughs> it's just embarrassing. Man, I, very have, you, have you thought about your own weight, not the poor car? Like- <laughs> <laughs> oh. Man, um, I, had, I had Hungry Jacks today and I regret it already. <laughs> Back to the rangey boys. I, I noticed you gave the cost of ownership rating a 10, which quite surprised me. Yes, because it's free. Uh, when you buy a new Range Rover, you get five years of free servicing. Um, kind of like buying a Ferrari, you get seven years of free servicing. But it's like, I mean, it's as good as it gets, right? You buy the car. The only thing you have to pay for, I suppose, is if you destroy a set of tires or, or brake pads. And you really wouldn't be doing brake pads in five years unless you're doing something silly. But tires probably, if you drive enough Ks. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's nothing to worry about, right? Um, the warranty, five years free servicing. Uh, all the sort of British reliability stuff 
should be put at ease at least for five years anyway. Um, so yeah, um, I mean, what else can you ask a manufacturer to do? How, how do you rate the uh, technology compared to say the latest BMWs? Yeah, look, I was actually genuinely surprised by how quick the infotainment system was. You know how Jaguar Land Rover product is. It's usually not that great when it comes to tech and infotainment. It's slow, it's clunky, but this just worked. The the uh, um, wireless CarPlay worked really fast. The infotainment system itself worked really fast. I liked the fact that I could control the aircon units without the screen. Yeah. That was a yeah. bonus. It should never be a bonus because you could do that 100 years ago. But, um, it, you know, but the screens themselves are super fast. Uh, they're curved. All of them are curved, which looks really cool as well. The uh, instrument cluster is really crisp and sharp. So, look, I, I think it's on par with, with sort of what Mercedes and BMW are offering uh, and probably a little bit better than what you get from an Audi these days. So it's a huge step up for Jaguar Land Rover that's always suffered um, in that department. Well, you've given it a car expert rating of nine. The review can be seen on the site now. Thank you, Albors. No worries, guys. I'll talk to you soon. What a bumper podcast that was. Uh, what cars have we got coming up next week, Will? Yeah, so uh, in Melbourne, we've got the Volkswagen Golf R, uh, Lexus ES300H. Uh, I had one recently. It was a luxury. This is the sports luxury. Uh, a very interesting comparison test that I'm sure Croft would have a lot to say about. Uh, Hyundai Staria versus Volkswagen Multivan. So two oh, very wow. funky looking vans. Um, Toyota RAV4 in Sydney for you, Croft, I believe. Um, wow. And up here in Brisbane. <laughs> really? <laughs> I, I, I have not. Um, yeah, I, look, somebody in Sydney will be driving. Someone, it. because I'm the well. Yeah, I've got I've got two or three more reviews to do this week, and I'm going away Sunday to that BMW well, thing. Um, have fun with that. Should be good. Um, I will be swapping out of a Skoda Kodiak into a very different uh, people carrier from uh, from the Volkswagen Group, and that's a Volkswagen Caddy. Oh, wow. pull, oh I love pull up at my local. At my local surf shop. Is, uh, is it the California? <laughs> no, it's not. It's just the oh. Caddy, Caddy Life uh, TDI should, 320. You should get into that California because it's just out. Yeah. Um, well, we'll see if I can get my get my hands on that. Yeah. Um, s- speaking of events, uh, Scott will be going to a Subaru, Subaru WRX event. I just got back from a Jeep Grand Cherokee L event, which I wow. will probably tell you guys about next week. So we've got uh, a lot of interesting cars through the garage and uh, yeah. cool events coming up. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Awesome. That's a wrap. Thank mm. you, Tony Crawford, and thank you, William Stopford. Thanks, Mandy. Thanks, Mandy. Well.